Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. We kick off today's show by speaking to Singapore national diver, Frida Lim. Hi, Frida. How are you? Hello, I'm doing good. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for taking time to come on the show. First of mm-hmm. all, I understand you're still serving quarantine. Yes, I am. Uh, which day are you at at the moment? Um, I think today would be day seven. Wow. You still got another two weeks to go, I suppose. Yeah. Let's talk about that because I was just talking to a, another football coach who's just come back from India. He's got to serve 21 days. And he did say that it's taking a bit of a toll on his mental health. How are you coping with this? I think I generally do quite well when I'm by myself. I've, I've done the quarantine. This will be my second time quarantine. But previously, I've only done uh, two weeks. Mm. But I think I'm getting some much-needed rest and some me time, which is nice, and just chilling out since I just finished my exams and I'm about, I'm about to graduate. Oh, that's nice. So it's almost like a vacation uh, by yourself then? Yeah, like a staycation. <laughs> a staycation. No, it's good to see that uh, different people have different coping mechanisms. I want to talk to you about, of course, the FINA Diving World Cup in Tokyo, which is kind of like a dress rehearsal to the Tokyo Olympics, isn't it? What was your experience like? Um, I had a lot of fun at Tokyo, even though we couldn't really um, go out to sightsee or do really anything else besides training and hanging out back at the hotel. I think it was a good experience. I, All of us haven't really competed since like basically 2019. So I think this um, kind of reintroduced us back to like competing internationally at such a high level. And it was so it was very nice to be able to dive um, with such amazing athletes again and just get back into, I think, competition mindset. It's amazing you said that you didn't compete from 2019. It's tough to do, isn't it? All that training, all that preparation, and then you got really nothing to compete. I think it's competition where athletes thrive, right? And again, I want to come mm-hmm. back to asking, did you at any point in time lose any sort of motivation for, for the sport because you just didn't have a outcome right you're just training with no outcome for me it wasn't so bad because we did have this meet targeted for sometime in 2021 so we didn't really know if when it was going to happen but like I think we knew or at least we were hoping very much that it was going to happen so I think for me when I was training this is all I was looking towards and it wasn't really something that I was training it wasn't I didn't really feel like I was training towards uh, unknown or nothing because I knew that at some point of time I'll get to compete mm. this competition or some some sort of trials or something. Mm. I want to also talk about you preparing for your final exams during or right after the FINA Diving World Cup. How do you manage, mm-hmm. you know, both? Being an athlete is already hard enough. Imagine now being in school and being... I suppose, preparing for exams, you, you really look like someone who's a high achiever and how, how do you balance the both? I think um, studying in the US really prepared me and um, trained me well in this aspect. I, Because in the US, we compete almost every once every two weeks mm. and um, our competition schedule does not, like, it's not planned according to our exam schedule. So we really have to um, be able to compete and as well study and take our exams um, when we have it we can't really like reschedule anything so we kind of always have to be on top of things and I think that really helped me um, in helping I guess helped me in managing my time well and this semester I was only taking one class so it wasn't really very difficult or anything and my teachers were super accommodating in like sending me lecture videos so I didn't have to like wake up in the middle of the night to watch my lectures. You know, it's amazing you say that because there's a common belief in sports, especially in football, that either you're good in football or you're good in school, right? Like (laughs) I've seen many athletes in other sports kind of mix both together and I still wonder why it's not happening in football. But, you know, thanks for confirming that with me. But I want to talk about the 2019 SEA Games, right? Because you're part of the SEA Games. And how was that experience? And, you know, what did you learn from that experience? Um, in the 2019 SEA Games, I competed the three-meter springboard. And I I really had a lot of fun in that SEA Games because I got to the chance to do an event that I don't normally do. And I do enjoy the springboard a lot. And I do train it when I was in the U.S. So I think that SEA Games experience was really, really different than all my previous, well, my 2015 and 2017 SEA Games experience. And SEA Games are always really very, very fun to go to, especially... Um, generally we have like quite a big team that goes and it's um, always very fun that meet. And yeah, I just 
it was a great experience being able to do an event that I don't normally do. And yeah, pretty nerve wracking because I don't really compete um, springboard, mm. but I think I did pretty well in handling my nerves because in the US, um, I competed both the one meter and three meter as well. Mm. Is that normal in, in diving that you, you know, get thrown into an event where you're not, you know, I suppose you're not used to? I think when you compete internationally, that's not really the case because you generally specialize. So like um, Kay and Ashley, Tim Mark, they're all springboard and then John, me, Max were all platform. But in the US, when you're on the the team, generally, you don't really have a choice. You, you kind of have to train all three mm. or at least that's what my coach made all, all of my teammates and I do. We competed all the one, three meter and as well as the tower event. So I think for college, it's very common, but for as an international athlete, we generally like specialize. I want to talk about the FINA Diving World Cup because you faced some of the best divers in the world and you were fighting for a spot in the Olympic Games. What was the most challenging aspect of that? I think the most challenging would be being able to have the confidence to to know that you are capable of diving along path with those other like amazing athletes and those world-class athletes and I guess controlling nervousness and a bit of like inferiority complex mm. when you're competing with like world's best. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that because I want to focus on that. When, when you say inferiority complex, is that to do with ability, your own belief, what belief system? What, what is it? I think it's more of like a personal confidence as well as like belief. Like in diving, especially when I went to the US, I had to work a lot on having the confidence or at least portraying that I had confidence because diving is such an aesthetic sport. You have to, they judge like from the moment you hear the, beat sound so they judge you how you walk up to the platform how you how your dive is as well as how like you present yourself even when you're resting or just doing like your modeling by the poolside so I think um, I guess diving is very based on how much you have to have confidence in yourself to to show the judges I guess Mm. that because I think they can see your like demeanor and like how you look so if you don't look like you have confidence in yourself, they can see that and they like could possibly mark you down for it. So I think that's something I work I had to work on a lot. And I'm still like working on even now. Wow. That's that's really interesting. All right, time for a quick break. When we come back, I want to continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. I'm joined on the show by Singapore national diver, Frida Lim. Frida, just before the break, you were talking about confidence and, you know, the demeanor allowing the judges to judge you on the way you dive. I kind of knew it, but now hearing it firsthand is quite interesting. And do you guys have special training for this kind of stuff where you're working with a confidence coach, you're working with a mental strength coach? Is that part of the sport? No, but it should be. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, but no, my I think in a way coaches should like work it into their um trainings. Like especially when I was in the US, my freshman year, my coach talked to me a lot about it and she works a lot on um picking up certain practices that I do just before my dive to help me like increase my confidence, I guess. Mm. But yeah, it's quite an important aspect. You know, you also had your fair share of challenges to to get to where you are today because not a lot of people are aware. Through our research, we found out that you also suffered from a challenge called hyperthyroidism. Is that how you pronounce that? Uh, mm-hmm. When you're much younger, yeah. which really led you to take up diving. Isn't that right? Yeah, I used to be a swimmer before, but um, Graves' disease um, really affected my metabolism. Mm. So I had to pick a spot that didn't require so much cardio, I guess. Yeah. And when you train for diving, is that something that is non-existent? I mean, I'm thinking you're a high-level athlete. Cardio has to be part of the whole training program, right? Uh, yeah, it definitely does. Um, it, I guess when I started diving, it definitely didn't affect um, my training as much as if when I was a swimmer. Like for diving, it just takes me a little long because I had... Uh, a little bit of muscle wasting, mm. especially in my upper body. It just takes me a little longer to build muscles, especially uh, in my upper body. And But I think right now, I, my, my condition is quite stabilized and I can do cardio and all, but I just have, to, I'm still taking medication for it and I just have to, I guess, 
once in a while monitor how um, I'm feeling and just take note of them. Let's talk about the Olympics because everybody is holding their breath to see whether you actually make it there. Last week, I had your team manager, Crystal Wang, on the show. I was trying to figure out how do people actually qualify for the Olympics in diving. I, could re- I mean, she did a great job in explaining how that happens. But what's your take on that? Because you still have to wait, right? Uh, yeah, generally in the previous Olympics, um, if you're top eighteen at the World Cup, the year of the Olympics, it generally means that you have qualified. But it's not set in stone until uh, FINA officially comes up with a list of athletes in June. Mm. So, what are your chances? Um, I think my chances are pretty high, mm. and especially since I came in fifteenth, so I am still a few spots down from the 18th. So I think that puts me in a really good spot. Mm. And I suppose you are preparing like you are going to the Olympics. And what will it mean for you personally to be at the Olympics? I think I haven't really processed it fully, but right now I'm just thinking it'll be pretty cool. <laughs> but yeah, I to be honest, when I first started diving, I didn't really have Olympics in mind. I, I just wanted to dive and to see how far I would go. But um in 2019 at the Guangzhou World Championships, it really hit me that I actually had a good shot, a good shot at qualifying for it. I'm pretty excited if I once if if I actually do qualify. Yeah, when you qualify, it's only a matter of when. I think we all want to keep our fingers crossed and um, hope that you get there. You become Singapore's first ever female diver to go to the Olympics. What do you feel of being part of history in a sense? I haven't really thought about that. <laughs> I don't really have words that can come into mind right now, but other than it's that would be pretty cool. And I'm just really glad that I can, um, I guess, inspire uh, the young ones and future um, people who want to start diving and to be able to help this community, this sport grow in Singapore. Mm. And to, I guess, really just inspire and prove that like anybody can do it. Yeah. You know, the thing with athletes is that you don't really think about it at the moment when you're involved I think a lot of it happens when you are finished when you start thinking about looking back in your career say that was pretty cool to create history and stuff like that what have you heard about the Olympics Mm -hmm. and of course we know that the world is going through a pandemic every day there's news that the Olympics might not go on or it might go on there's a lot of speculation around it what's your take on that in the sense that what would you feel like and I'm, I'm pretty sure you'd be disappointed if it doesn't go ahead but what's your take do you think that the olympics should go ahead because people are they have mixed feelings about this yeah i mean i would definitely be really disappointed if they decide, do decide to cancel it but also if that's the case then like you honestly can't help it but i honestly don't think that they would cancel the olympics because i feel like too much has gone into like the planning already and too much money has been spent mm-hmm. in planning for this so I feel like it would probably go on just with really, really strict measures, which that would be the best case scenario for it to still go on, but with like really strict measures and of course, no spectators. You had a bit of a taste of that when you went to the FINA World Cup not too long ago. Did you feel safe with the, all the safety protocols and all the stuff that you had to go through? For the, for the athletes leaving from Singapore, I felt pretty safe going there. Um, I th- I guess the only part that I didn't feel too safe was um, obviously we can't wear any sort of PPE while we're diving even like a mask or anything so that was just a little scary um, having to I guess stand decently close to people from all over the world but um, all the measures um, outside like outside of the water itself I think they were pretty good and I felt pretty safe. One of the essence of the Olympics is, of course, the athletes with village where you get to rub shoulders with some of the best in the world, not just in your sport, but household names in many other sports. I suppose as an athlete, you would have been looking forward to that. And that might be a high chance that that won't happen. Do you think that it will take away that experience of the whole Olympic feeling and Olympic spirit away from that event for you? To some degree, I guess it would. But to be honest, I'm um, if I go there, I'm going there to compete and to dive the best I can. So I think for me, I'll just focus on my event and how I need to properly rest and train for my event. But it definitely would affect, I guess, the possible experience. But the being able to call myself an Olympian, I guess it would be all the same. Mm, that's true. Before I let you go, do you have a personal goal when you get to the Olympics? Is that something that you want to do for yourself in terms of uh, the sport itself? 
I think when I get there, I just want to be able to dive the best as I can. Um, dive like I know how I, like I know how I can, and just have fun with it. I always tell myself that I should have fun and just enjoy the product of my hard work and just yeah, just have, getting the opportunity to go to the Olympics is once in a lifetime, and I should just be able to have fun with the whole experience. So that's my goal. On that note, we wish you the very best. Thanks for taking time to come on the show, and we definitely want to see you at the Olympics. And all the best, Frida. Thank you so much. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. It's time for the rant, a segment where we talk about anything and everything in sports. Joining me on the show today are, as usual, Des Cockill and Philip Go. And if you'd like to share your thoughts with us on the topics we've been talking about or we will be talking about, call us at 669-11938 or send us a text at 963-11938. Uh, gentlemen, welcome on the show. Good morning, Sassy. Uh, it's a beautiful day up here in Kuala Lumpur. The, uh, the lockdown will not get us down, although let's be a little bit controversial about it, huh? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I must say, Phil, it is a wet morning here in Singapore. Where you are seated, how does it look like? Overcast. Very much like the Olympics, overcast. <laughs> oh, I like that. I like that. You know why? Because that's a great segue to our first topic of uh, discussion. Because some seriously hard-hitting topics we're going to be covering here. Let's start with what uh, Phil just said. Overcast over the Olympics. Because 59% of the Japanese population won the Olympics to be cancelled. The torch relay was taken off public roads due to the situation in Japan with the pandemic. I will come to you first because you got us started, Phil. What do you make of this Olympics? Do you think it should go ahead? I, I, I don't know what to make of it, um, Sasi. I, 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 I just don't know who's making the decision on, on things like this anymore. I mean, to me, it, it doesn't make sense for the, for the games to go ahead, right? I mean, you're 69 days away from from the games supposing to start, uh, you have just over the last couple of days, three more prefectures being shut down, you know, under emergency measures uh, to contain the virus. Um, you have um, only one or 2% of the uh, population having had uh, just one dose of the vaccination so far. And Japan, as we know, statistically, has been one of the lowest tested uh, nations uh, throughout the entire COVID crisis. I, I looked at the numbers and it's like, 100,000 uh, people being tested out of a million in the population when they take that measure. And you compare that with Singapore, mm. right? Singapore has 1.7 million, over 1 million. We are over-tested. So you're looking at a situation where 10,000 people are going to find their way into Tokyo to take part in these games and you're trying to keep all of them in a cocoon and you've got 500-something um, towns or villages trying to host these, these athletes, 35 of which have already pulled out because they are worried of of the uh, potential of spread of the disease. So there's just so many things being juggled at the moment. And the decision maker is in Tokyo. You know, it seems like Japan doesn't get, a, get the choice to make up their minds whether they should be hosting the games. It seems like it is, you know, IOC calling the shots. So to me, the whole thing is quite warped right now. And I, I really can't decide. I, I really can't make any sense of why a, a firm decision has, hasn't been taken for the games. Uh, right now mm. there's uh you might be working on the olympics so you know as a someone who's involved um, from a work perspective uh, maybe might have a bit of a biased uh, take on this what what do you make of it like do you think it should go ahead uh, well i hope it goes ahead um but it's if if it's safe if the authorities in inverted commas deem it safe of course you want it to go ahead but those um those polls about uh, Japanese people not wanting the Olympic Games to come to uh, Japan, it's close to 60%, according to, mm. to some of those polls. And you kind of, I'm really now, for the first time, really, really questioning whether or not they will go ahead. There's a, there's a really nice piece, though, by uh, Sebastian Coe, Lord Coe, um, president of the World Athletics, about uh, the, the, the restrictions or the, the, uh, the uh, what's the word, the confinement that the athletes and the, the um, participants would find themselves in uh, if they went to the, the games. They'd be in this bubble, they'd be in an almost hermetically sealed bubble, which we've seen work successfully in, in other sports. Uh, I followed closely the 
um, the production, the, the broadcast production of the Indian Super League late last year, uh, I think it was November, December or so, where literally everybody was in a hotel. They went from hotel, they ate in their rooms, they went down to, to the venue, they came back. And so it was almost like they were hermetically sealed. So it is possible to, to keep people away from them, from any danger. But gosh, it's, it's, it's hard, hard work for what is effectively sport. Um, mm. If it's safe, of course, of course, I'd love it to go ahead. But it seems it's like it's getting more and more and more difficult. What does need to happen, and, and I, I say this from a, um, a selfish perspective, is that it, a decision needs to be made pretty darn quickly. Because in my case, and I'm one of I'm a, a tiny, tiny cog, in my case, I would have to go through quarantine before I get down to where I'm going to. And so I've got, I've got to make plans. People have got to make plans. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have got to make plans. And that's not the, just the guys in Tokyo. So um, I hope it goes ahead if it's deemed to be safe. If it is going to be cancelled, cancel it sooner rather than later. Because as you say, just less than two months to go. And um, we, we still don't know. I hope it goes ahead, though, because uh, it, the world needs some good news at the moment, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think uh, that's what we need. We need some good news. But Phil, when you look at athletes who are coming from around the world, is it then right to kind of say no to some athletes who are coming from uh, countries where I suppose the pandemic has gone out of order? But that's really against the Olympic spirit, isn't it? It's, it's, it's absolutely against the Olympic spirit to have a Games that, you know, you have to decide who, who, who is allowed and who isn't allowed. Right. I mean, un unless you're, you, you know, everything should be based on your, 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 your sporting um, prowess or your, your sporting ability. Uh, I want to object to what Des said just now about this being sport, because as we all know, over the years, Olympics has, has already become not exactly sports, but it, it made for TV event. If, if we examine the, the, the history of the Olympics, the why is it became so big? It was because in the past, when travel wasn't so convenient, you have to come and meet every four years instead of every year. We have now moved to, a, to, to an age where you can be somewhere in five hours by plane if it's, if it's working. Or, or even right now, we, we, are, we are connecting with each other over the, over the internet. So the, the, the times have changed. The Olympics hasn't. The, the power base, obviously, is getting a lot stronger um, for, for the people who are organizing it. And, you know, it's, it's now become a political football, I think. It's no longer sports. It's, it's politics that's, that's holding sway. I'm asking you, Sasi, if you want to host a party in your home, but, but somebody else comes and take over the whole hosting duty, and then, at, at, you know, when, when you're very near to the party, you decide that maybe you don't want to host that party anymore. And the person hosting the party says to you, sorry, mate, you don't get to decide on that. We are hosting the party regardless of what you think. How would you feel? <laughs> because that's exactly what yeah. Japan is feeling right right now, isn't it? I mean, that's 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 the, that's the crux of it. Because the IOC has the final say on whether these games go ahead or not, and they've decided that it's going to go ahead, come hell or high water. And trust me, it's going to be hell if, if these things go, if if these games go ahead and becomes a super spreader event. It's not just going to affect Japan; it's going to affect the nations where the athletes come from as well as Japan. Because all these people who go there, who get infected and then go back to their home country is going to end up making this pandemic even broader than it is right now. So I, I don't see the sense of this thing. I, I, I would love to see our Singapore athletes in action, especially those who have just qualified for the first time. But there's such a high price to pay for, for this right now. And as we saw events in the last two weeks in Singapore, we know this thing can turn on a coin. So it is just, to me, too high a risk. And, and I, I just don't see any reason why someone shouldn't just step in right now and say, no, let, let's, let, let's call it off for another year. There's a cheery message mm. for the world, huh? <laughs> first of all, first of all, it's not going to happen in my household because I don't make the decisions here. I'm just a visitor in my own house. Let's put it that way, gentlemen. Uh, on that note, let's go for a quick break. When we come back, uh, we continue this conversation. 
Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. Joining me on the show are Philip Go and Des Corkill. If you want to join us on the conversation, call us at 669-11938 or send us a text message at 963-11938. Gentlemen, let's talk about something a bit more lighthearted. Maybe we can be a bit more happy with this news because Singapore captain, Harry Sarun, he's back in Singapore. He's signed for the Lion City Sailors. Um, I can't say it came as a shock because there were murmurs about the sailors signing uh, Harris back from JDT or bring him back from JDT. He's a family man, of course, and it must be really hard to be staying away from the family that long. Um, but I like the way that JDT gave him a grand send-off. Um, Des, you are probably closer to the ground on this one. What did you make, him, uh, make of him leaving JDT? Uh, as you say, it was possibly um, predictable because he's, he's getting towards the, not the veteran stage. He's still only 30, remarkably. He's been playing uh, top flight, flight football for 14, 15 years. But he wasn't getting as many starts as he was. Uh, um, Inser is, is uh, developing into a, a genuine competitor for that central midfield role for him. Uh, um, but he's been given the hugest of fond farewells by JDT. Um, he joined from the Lions uh, 12 um, setup, having won the league, and then he, he went on and he's just been success after success after success. And he's been a very important part of uh, the JDT success in Malaysia. I need to just say so there's nothing Harris has, has done that's wrong. He's been consistently excellent. I would have loved to have seen him maybe stretch himself, try to go to maybe Australia or Japan or a, you know, a genuinely strong league uh, to, for us to really be convinced that, you know what, Harris is a top, top player. He's let nobody down. He's been wonderful for Johor. He doesn't owe anybody anything. But from a sporting context, I, I just wish I'd seen him in a, a physically more demanding league because whenever I watched Harris play, he never looked stretched. He never looked stressed. He was always in control. I saw him in his, his last uh, start uh, uh, against KL at Cheras, um, where he scored, uh, which was a rare thing for Harris. And so he was always, I thought, within his comfort zone, a very high standard comfort zone. But don't, wouldn't you have loved to have seen if he could have done it in the A-League or in the J-League or at a higher level? That's my only question mark. Him coming back to Singapore is great news for Singapore. It's, um, I wonder who's going to be left out the starting eleven. Uh, for, for Lion City Sailors. That's an interesting conundrum uh, for, for the incumbent new coach. But um, yeah, Harris, gosh, how could, could he have done it on a big league, on a bigger stage? Yeah, I think, you know what, uh, we've got a caller who's just calling in with regards to his uh, take on the Olympics. Um, can we put, get him on the line here? Hi there, you there? Hi, morning. Uh, Sasi and Tess and Phil. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, have a good morning. Yeah. And I, I, I would like to, uh, I, I would like to say something regarding the Olympic events. Cause, uh, cause uh, we all know that the current situation is inappropriate to hosting the events. But because of IOC, uh, determined to host the events, I think, uh, I mean, I, I'm worried about the Singapore athletics and because they went to Japan and because they went to Japan and there is a lot I mean the whole world at athletics will be there and then I'm thinking that uh, whether they will bring back the virus to us or not because mm. uh, I mean we are in the uncharted uncharted territory so so we are, uh, so I'm not sure is it going to be is it, is it going to be become a, a super spreader event. If, and another thing I would like to highlight is the because for what I know the Channel Five or, or the Media Corp are not going to showing the Euro 2020. So I hope that if if what we uh, if the Media Corp knows that if the Olympics are going to cancel it. Uh, is it possible to show uh, the Euro 2010? <laughs> and because it was too expensive for us to be spend the $80 plus. Yeah, so I hope uh, Media Corp okay. will consider yeah, for my suggestion. Oh. Yeah, that's all. Okay, I, okay. I like 
Thank you. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for the calling in and uh, giving us your opinion. It really matters on this show. Uh, interesting, gentlemen, right? We will, we'll, we'll take that in two, two parts here. Uh, first of all, he's talking about the super spreader event. I think we all alluded to it. We know that there's a real danger in this, of course, protecting our athletes and protecting Singapore. Second part of it was kind of interesting. There's what, you know, or maybe, Phil, I'll come to you on this one. He said about uh, if we don't show the Olympics, show the Euro 2020. <laughs> that was uh, pretty nice of Anthony. Well, I, I'm sure the broadcast companies in, in Singapore went out and bid for the uh, for for Euro. It's it's just again, it's it's now boiled down to a, a to the to, to dollars and cents. I mean, whoever bids the highest, and we all know that with the opening of of uh, internet protocol TV, uh, live streaming, and all of that, um, that's really opened up a new way of of bringing sports content to the people. And uh, there are lots of uh, rights owners out there who are keen to explore that 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 uh, avenue and keen to give events away to just exclusively for streaming. So I, I guess that's the situation in Singapore right now. Um, and and I, I, I do feel for football fans in Singapore who have to uh, continue to to find new ways of, of watching uh, the game they love. But I, I, I think in this situation, at this very, very late juncture, I'm not sure how Mediacorp's going to go out and, and, and win a deal. If, if they can, that would be great. But uh, I'm not very optimistic for that to happen at all, to be honest. All right. Our colleagues at Mediacorp, if you're listening, <laughs> fans are crying out for you to be uh, broadcasting the Euro 2020. But let's come back to what we've been talking about. Uh, Phil, I want to stay with you on this one because Lion City Sailors now, what will Haris Harun bring to the table? Still, uh, experience. Uh, he, he, he came for a, he went for an interview with a CNA 938 and, and um, he said he's, you know, he's learned some things from, from being in the Malaysian League and he'll bring those ideas over. And in fact, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really touched by how they gave him that big send-off. And, mm. and I spoke to some mm. of the people in the, in, the, in the JDT team as well. And they said that, um, you know, they, they consider him a legend and, and they decided to give him a proper send-off. And no other player has actually been given a send-off like that before. And in fact, it was the top three hardest goodbye for, for JDT. You know, they, they consider him among the top three. It was Safik Rahim, Luis Figueroa and Haris Harun, the three players they didn't want to see leave, which, you know, they, they, they feel they had to give him a huge tribute. And just just reading the words, you know, written down by, by Tengku Makuta, Johor, TMJ, um, all, the, all, the, all the things he said about Haris just shows you what a figure he is. And I like to see that being transferred into to the SPL. I mean, he's, he's a highly respected character in the Malaysian League. Will we accord him the same respect in, in the Singapore League and, and, and respect the kind of ideas he's bringing back? So I, I mm. think he's, you know, there's really no other team that can afford him in terms of wages. I, I think in terms of reputation, there's a far few. Uh, there, there, there are obviously other teams who would love to have Harris as well. But he's chosen to come back to a club that he's, he's had association with uh, for the right reasons. Um, mm. I like to see him come well, up with some ideas. I mean, we, we actually asked him what sort yeah. of role he, he, he sees himself playing in goal 2034. Sorry, Phil. So, sorry to cut you out there. We need to go for a break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. This is The Rant and joining me in the show are Des Kokil and Philip Goh. If you want to join us on the conversation, the number to dial is 669-11938 or send us a text at 963-11938. Uh, gentlemen, just before the break, we're talking about Haris Harun. I want to continue the conversation because we need to give tribute to a guy who's really been flying the flag in Malaysia. Um, Des, who do you think is the other player had the same impact, uh, if, um, effect in the Malaysian league like Harris in the past? Because we know the likes of Fundy, Malik, uh, you know, all of these guys played in Malaysia. Do you think that uh, Harris had the same impact like them in Malaysia, in your opinion? Uh, a very different impact uh, in that it, it, Harris was never spectacular in anything he did. His interviews were never spectacular. His performances were never spectacular. They were just consistently high standard. He was right place, right time. So he's not a headline maker or a headline grabber, which I think is why he's so highly valued by Johor in that he'd go out, he'd do his job, he'd help, he'd help others do his job. Perfect, perfect uh, teammate to have. So I think he's unique in that. And, he, and he's very similar for Singapore as well. He goes in, he's, he's not standout outstanding, 
but he is consistently outstanding and has been throughout uh, his long career. He's nearly 15 years now as a pro. So I, I think his, his achievements at Johor are unique. But I again, I, I just repeat what, what I said earlier. I would have loved to, to have known if he was able to make it in Japan or Korea or a physically stronger or physically faster league. That's not to take anything nothing from what he achieved at Johor because he's made them a club who can compete at the AFC Champions League. They won the AFC Cup. But uh, do you understand where I'm coming from? If if he could have made Absolutely. it in a phys physically stronger league, I think his legend would have even been bigger uh, in Singapore than, than it already is. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because he's kind of overachieved in, in a league and then you start to say that because he's overachieved, uh, you know, yeah. can he do something better somewhere else, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know unfair, what I mean? It's a catch it <laughs> Exactly, exactly. I, I know where you're coming from. Uh, but, Phil, isn't it timely for Lion City sailors who have been, um, no pun intended, you have rudderless for a while because they deal in midfield and Harris now stepping into the middle of the park, uh, I suppose, alongside uh, the Diego Lopez and Shadan, all of a sudden now these Lion City sailors look like world beaters now. Well, they have to be Albirax beaters to start with, don't they? I mean, they're one, <laughs> one, point, one, one point behind right now. You like to think that Harris is going to be that 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 piece of the puzzle. And, and funnily enough, I think it might be, you know, I mean, Harris, don't forget when Harris first joined JDT, we also had Sharil Ishak as well as Bayaki Kaizan, two other very highly rated uh, Lions players um, um, joining the same team. And very soon um, as Harris was elevated to JDT1, the other two were, were, were pushed over to JDT2. And, and not only that, JDT made Harris the captain as well. And he's leaving the club as, as a club captain. And so that, that shows you the regard that he's being held there. And you like to think that there's enough time for Harris to come in and make a difference for the uh, for the Lion City Sailors. And, and to a point, I kind of like that, but I kind of don't like that. I like that because, you know, for once, you, you have a stacked team that's going to go out and try and break the dominance of Albirax Nigata. And the other, the other thing, well, but, but the other, on, the, on the flip side, it kinda, you, you kind of see like all the talents being drawn into the one team. Like you don't want to see Lion City Sailors being the Bayern Munich of, of Singapore, for example. Um, where, you know, all the best guys go there and then the rest just get the rest, the, the best of the rest. So, and then to a point, let's see what what role Harris is assigned when he gets there, um, how soon they can get him going and, and, and how they'll slot, in it, slot him in and, and who makes way for him and whether he will work well with the, uh, with the Brazilians as well. So, you know, and given the, the depth of talent that we have at LCS, I, I really don't see anything for them other than to go on and win the, SR, the, the, the SPL. So let's see them do it. Mm, you know what is interesting? With the under-23 rule, we mm. could see a lot more <laughs> national players on the bench now because they're, they're forced to play the, the start with the young boys. So it's going to be interesting to see whoever, if it's Robin or whoever's coming uh, to take the role, how he's going to manage all of that. Let's move on from Haris Harun to the English FA Cup finals because Chelsea will be taking on Leicester City and we will see... 20,000 fans back at the stadium, and this is in Wembley, of course. Uh, fans under 18 cannot attend. The people who are clinically extremely vulnerable or pregnant uh, have to be told not to apply for the tickets for this pilot. There's, are you happy that fans can get back into the stadium? Do you think this is being um, progressive or is this being irresponsible? Uh, the authorities have decided it's it's okay, so it's okay. Um, I'm delighted. It, it's, it's great to have genuine cheers. I was I was at a game, at the, the Harris Harren game the other day where KL allowed, um, I think it was 1,500 fans in for the match against Johor. And to actually hear people cheering at the stadium, it, it took me took me a little bit by surprise because oh, it was great. <laughs> it was fabulous. It wasn't just the players anymore. It was it was fans getting emotional. It was, it, it's a different noise. It generates a different atmosphere. It, the players responded to it in in different ways as well. So even just with 1,500 uh, in, in Cheras, um, that, that was great. So we can imagine that Wembley, even though it's only um, what's it, a quarter full, that mm. will be terrific for the players. And I think may well boost Leicester more than it will Chelsea in, in the actual game. They always say the fans are worth um, are, are worth a, a goal or they're worth a little bit of uh, momentum for any any team that does well. I think uh, the Leicester fans are so starved 
of uh, FA Cup success. This is their first final in over 50 years that they might go in in there and make one heck of a racket. I just hope, and here's one of my things, you're not allowed to take Vuvuzelas in or you're not allowed to take those happy clapper things in. <laughs> I just hope that that ban is there. Otherwise, I'll be bemoaning fans getting back. But no, it's great news. It's great news. Yeah, it's not great news for everyone because uh, Level Playing Field, a charity that campaigns for inclusive match day experience and equal access to uh, disabled sports fans, said this was a very ill-thought-through policy. Obviously, someone's not happy with that, the way that they are allocating tickets, Phil. Well, what do you make of that? Should somebody, uh, you know, be given the ability to make those decisions for themselves? Um, this is really a bit, in, you know, insulting to people who are undergoing, I say, maybe some sort of disease in their life. And you are making a decision for them. Obviously, this charity is saying that. Let them decide. Who are you to decide? I think we should decide for them. I'm so sorry about that. I, I, I think if they're... If they have some kind of health problems, they shouldn't be attending these matches. They shouldn't be taking the chances. And if they want to be boneheaded about it, then sorry, you're not getting a ticket. Let, let's not forget that these 20,000 fans who are turning up for the FA Cup final, they have to take a, a test. Uh, I, I, I don't know whether they're taking the PCR or the other test. Um, three days, uh, two to three days before attending the final, they need to show proof that they have a test. And before they enter the stadium, they have to do another test to get in. So, I mean, th there's a whole lot of testing regimes being put in place. I'm not sure if those those are put in place for the Malaysian games there's that you attended. But, you know, these 20,000 fans, it is a pilot project. We are looking at a situation where the last two matches of the, the last two rounds of the English Premier League, they're going to let the home teams, you know, welcome fans into the stadium. This is all part of that huge plan to let fans get back into sports. So, I, I, I you know, so the, here's the problem, right? Whenever you do something like this, then there will be all these other people who say you're marginalizing the, the disabled and all of that. But it is scientifically proven that, you know, if you've got health issues, you're more likely to actually die from catching COVID-19. So why, why are these mm. people, you know, why are these people griping about not being able to attend a football match that has a potential to be a super spreader event? I, I, it boggles my mind that they're willing to risk their life to go and see a football match. And if you say, you know, let them let them have a choice, then I, I really throw my hands up at that because I, I don't have an answer for that. Mm. You know, if you want to be a lemming and, mm. and then jump over the cliff, then by all means, you know, what, what else can I say? <laughs> all right. All right. All right. On that note, on that note, let's go for a break. When we come back, we continue this conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Sports Talk Saturday. This is The Rant and joining me on the show are Philip Goh and Desko Kiel. Gentlemen, moving away from uh, our earlier conversation, Liverpool fans must be really happy when we start talking about this topic because Manchester United should be fielding a B team against Leicester City, says Trevor Sinclair, the former Premier League player. One Gulaf Sokshaw, he made 10 changes for Leicester's visit to Old Trafford and Brendan Rodgers' side uh, were able to secure a two-win victory to tighten the grip on the fourth, our top four finish. And of course, Sinclair, Sinclair also believes that United should be punished for fielding a weakened side and failing to arrange enough security to ensure that the game against Liverpool could be played. Um, Des, I know you're super passionate about this one. You wanted to talk about this on the show. You are saying that this is equivalent to match fixing. I didn't say equivalent. I said it's, it's, if this was anywhere else in the world and you changed that number of first-team players for the players who played in the game against Leicester, people had raised their eyebrows. Um, listen, the Premier League handbook says clubs must behave with the utmost good faith to each other. And section L19 says in every league match, each participating club shall field a full strength team. The team Manchester United put out, and I, I, I thought long and hard about penning this before the Leicester game, but they had Williams uh, um, playing at right back. His last first team game was in March. They had Tellez, last first team um, start in the Premier League was in January. Uh, Twantebe, last start in February. Two debutant teenage wingers, Debutants in the league. Uh, Mata last played, last started the league game for Manchester United in February. In no way, no way at all was this anything remotely like a full strength side. And in no way was this them, uh, Manchester United, behaving with the utmost good faith to their rivals, uh, Liverpool 
the, the following day. So they made they made a choice. And when I looked at that starting lineup, and, and I've heard uh, Jurgen Klopp say, oh, there's no problem. Yeah, I would have done the same. Tell you what, if, 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 and I'm not, if I was a betting man, I immediately go out and put a lot of money on Leicester to win that game. And look what happens. Leicester will go out and win the game against a very, very understrength side. You're telling me, you're telling me that that is a full strength side. I know you're going to say three games, whatever, but um, three games in five days. Whose fault was it that the match was, was um, called off in the first place? It was Manchester United and them allowing fans into their stadium. And, and there's not been an ounce of um, uh, regret or a, a comment about, hey, we were at fault in allowing fans into our stadium. It was our fans at fault. All we've had is, oh, this this is physically impossible. I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to play this team. I, I saw that team put out against Leicester. I was livid, just livid, on a pure sporting um, capacity. Phil? The score was 2-1. It wasn't that it was 10-0 or, you know, it was a lopsided. The score finished 2-1. So do you buy this, I suppose, um, what, whatever the rant he's gone on about, Des? Do, do you buy this? Because it's 2-1. The coaches I, can do whatever they want because he's just I, being I, a Liverpool fan, it. right? I buy it completely, but I'm angry at not, not the same people that Des is angry with. I understand completely what, why why uh, Solskjaer did what he did. I, I understand why Klopp said he supported what Solskjaer did. Three games in in five days when in, when it shouldn't be. I mean, if you look at the schedule, right? Man, you aren't playing any games uh, this coming week. Um, so why shouldn't they have done it in such a way where they, they play two matches and then and then play that extra match this week? The the, the people who made the decision, the, the the Premier League guys, execs in the boardroom who make the decision to make them play three games in five week, uh, five days, those guys are responsible for this mess. I mean, they, they forced the hand of, of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. And, and you know, why, why shouldn't they have thought it out? I tell you how I got to know this situation. I, I, I play, as you know, the Fantasy Premier League, right? Those guys mm. was, were looking at the whole, whole lineup, the fixtures, and they, they thought, the best way to, to, to sort it out was to have Menu playing two matches this week and then, you know, they play their extra match next week. Instead, they went for a, a three-game three week for Ma Manchester United. It just absolutely boggles my mind how these people feel that the, the, the players are machines and they should go out and, and, and get it done. Harry Maguire goes out first match, you know, hurts himself, doesn't play the next two matches. He's, he's got a huge hole to fill, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, in, in that defensive lineup, especially for a player that has played every single minute that he's able to this season. So you're, you're looking at an increased workload, this number of players that he has at his disposal, big match coming up against Liverpool, and then he has got to, to make his choices. Of course, he's going to stack his team against Liverpool. And, 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 and even then, it didn't come out. Um, um, the, the correct result for men. Therein lies the phrase. Therein lies the phrase. Right. You said, of course, he's going to stack it against Liverpool. A charter says you must behave with the utmost good faith to each other. That is not behaving in any good faith to, well, to potential not, opponents. Not to Leicester, obviously, but I mean to Liverpool. I mean, he gave you guys the most, the most utmost respect. I mean, you want to talk about how people are stacking their teams right now? Manchester City played Scott Carson in goal last night. Scott Carson. If listen, it, it, they played. They played Scott Carson in goal last night, admittedly, but they did not have seven non-regular first-teamers. So this is plucky Man United. Oh, good old plucky Man United. The underdogs are doing so well with their billion-dollar business. We've just had the big wretched uh, arguments about European Super League and the billions involved for these clubs, and you're suddenly defending plucky Manchester United at home against the Champions League rival. Three, three, games, three games in five days. There's, I mean, try, try doing that. Two teenage debutants. Two teenage debutants. Um, players who haven't played since March. Players who haven't played since January. If these squad players are so good, they should be getting more games. Mm. <laughs> I, I have no answers no, to that one. I, I'm sorry. It, yeah, exactly. So that, that, there, therein lies this argument, right? There's... You're saying this because you might you might feel a little bit slighted because you are a Liverpool fan, but if you are a Manchester United fan, how would you feel? 
my, my team's lost two. It's not a Liverpool. No, you're, you're getting this wrong, Sassy. It's not a Liverpool thing. It's a sporting integrity. It is, of course, thing. it's a Liverpool thing. It's a you're sporting integrity. Of... I'm not. It's a sporting integrity thing. Absolutely. But... Two teenage debutants in a home match. So you make yourself plucky. Manchester United, never in a million years. I, I thought they. They've, they've played this so, so, so wrong, so unfairly, so unsportingly. That may be naive, but I'm sure, I'm sure that's what the big protests are. It's very unsporting to go and play in a league where there's no relegation. We love the sporting integrity. Where's the sporting integrity in playing four uh, potential starting players in your 11? And that includes David Gea, who is acknowledged to be the number two goalkeeper. He's not a bad number two goalkeeper. Yeah, but what, four what, what, starting what? players. Where, where's the integrity in, 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 in making the fixture in this manner when you know there's an, a choice of doing it better by making Man U play two games last week and then play the extra game this week? I mean, they should have gone that direction, right, for the fixture makers, but they decided not to. They decided to make Man U do the extra hard work and then let them have a rest this week. I mean, you, you look at the situation, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Hey, listen, if they played them yeah. this week, there would have been protests by United anyway. <laughs> but 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 you know, looking back at this incident, right? Of course, um, would you think that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer would risk this, like playing at home, losing to Leicester City two one, and like you said, this he made all these changes. But managers, you know, they they think a little bit long term, don't they? Do do you think we can give him the the benefit of the doubt in the sense that you know he's thinking a little bit long term, and uh, possibly you know maybe even making decisions and from a more selfish perspective. And now he's getting, you know, everyone's like jumping on the bandwagon and say, oh, you shouldn't have done that. Do, should we give managers a, a benefit of the doubt at least? Let's just say that, you know, he had to do it because his hands were tied in some sense, like what uh, Phil just said. I understand he, ha he has to rotate some players. My argument is that the side mm. that he put out compared the Villa and the, and the, uh, the Liverpool games and the side he could put out for Leicester was unsportingly weak. Two teenagers debuting. That's that's the one that just smacks me. As you are kidding me. You're Manchester United. You've got to be better than that. You've got to be fairer than that. And they weren't. They simply were not fair. Sporting integrity thrown out the window against the Premier League handbook guidelines against what they've signed up for and 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 it's one of these little things it's like diving in the penalty area people say oh it's okay now look at what happens to the fa cup and the league cup ah it's only a it, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it does matter it does matter if you sign up to something that's sporting integrity and you go against the words of that that's the big issue on this and manchester united the biggest culprits on this particular occasion Mm. You know, a lot of Manchester United fans have been protesting the last couple of weeks against the, I suppose, the owners. Phil, do you think they will feel anything about this at all? Do you think that it will suit them fine? What do you think? Have you spoken to any Manchester United fans at all about this? Why? Why well, I haven't. I, I, I generally try to avoid that, to, <laughs> to, to be honest with you. But, but if I were a Man U fan, right, and I look at the schedule and it's like three games in five, uh, three games in five days and... and you know, one of them is against Liverpool. I'm I'm going to stack my team against Liverpool. I'm I'm so sorry, but that traditional rivalry is there. You know, of the three teams I have to face, this is the one mm. team that I do not want to lose to. And if it's the last game of the schedule, I want to make sure that I've got fit players. You know, players who are close to 100% fit to face Liverpool. And even then, they, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer took a gamble and he lost. He lost on two occasions. He lost on two out of the three matches, and and it was a huge gamble for him to take. And so, you know, it, it, so rip it, up the charter. Clubs must behave with the utmost no good faith. There. there is, it's written there. It's the Premier League charter no, there's, bill. There's no char there's Clubs there's no must behave version. with the we utmost the good faith to each other. Coming up in 69 days. What's, and what, what's sporting So once again, though? Phil, you're kind of going, ah, it's all right. Rules don't <laughs> matter. Sporting integrity doesn't matter. Cheating is fine. It's not. It really is not. Ah, no. All right, gentlemen. All right, gentlemen. I, you know what? Uh, unfortunately, we ran out of time, like we always do on the show. Thank you so much for your time. Enjoy the rest of the weekend. Calm down a little bit. Have a coffee or something and uh, chill out. Thanks, gentlemen. Cheers, Sassy. Thanks, Sassy. Thanks, Dennis. Cheers to Phil, the benevolent dictator.